0: the pilot luckily managed to make it back down to base camp uh, which was touch and go for him because i mean he can't afford to just stay at camp two you know he's he's got fuel fuel levels he's got you know he's not acclimatized to that altitude he's got limited oxygen things like that manages luckily to make it down to base camp and then we had a really hairy fly down back down to Lukla, literally in in the riverbed all the way down we actually had to to stop halfway, you know, and just land the helicopter and wait for this cloud cover to go. That was eye-opening.
1: Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with myself, phone Walker. In this session, we're going to be speaking with Dan Stretch on the challenges of Kazakh from Nepal and Pakistan. So Dan works as the operations manager at Global Rescue LLC within the APAC region as to retrieve some of the patients from the region and coordinate some of the most challenging CASAVACs in the world. So the region Dan operates in includes the Himalayas in Nepal and K2 in Pakistan. These mountain ranges are collectively some of the deadliest in the world and also have uh, posed some of the most difficult retrievals that any air ambulance could face so also within the span of this uh, year there's been a fourfold increase in passes to climb in these regions and something we're going to tap into further in the interview so welcome to the podcast dan uh could you just give a little bit of a potted bio as to how you came to be where you are now and indeed your role at global rescue
0: yeah sure so i mean it's pretty obvious that the main, one of the main factors is the altitude i mean uh i'll just start off with nepal when you when you fly into Nepal, you, you land in Kathmandu. Now, you, you, when you land, you're at 1,400 metres. So you, you land in a city that's, you know, it's not going to cause any symptoms, but just to give you an idea of the terrain there. And then from your hotel window, you'll see, you know, the Himalayan range. So everybody goes to Nepal for that reason, to go, to go climb, go remote. So as soon as you're, you know, you start your... Your trip there, you know, within a day, you're generally, you know, up at two, three thousand meters, and it just gets higher and higher from there. So, Everest is eight thousand eight hundred meters and some change. And, you know, obviously, when you go to these remote high altitude locations, you know, a, a, minor, a minor medical complaint can quickly get a lot worse. You don't have access to healthcare there. Uh, Nepal, you know, there, there are multiple helicopter companies now, so there are multiple ways of getting getting to you and getting you back down to healthcare, but obviously they're constrained by things like the weather, um, you know, they can only fly so high, 7,000 meters is their maximum ceiling they can pick you up at, and even on some mountains can be a little bit lower than that if there's no you know appropriate place to land um so yeah it's uh it's uh, it's a tough environment to to operate in i mean we've you know Globe rescue have sort of almost cornered the the market for you know climbers we're very uh popular with them so we do get a lot of exposure there over the years you know we've become pretty skilled there so i don't see nepal anymore as you know the hardest environment to operate in say so Pakistan is another level level up there's less uh, less helicopter companies we just use the Pakistan military there you're far more remote when you start climbing in Pakistan you may be like a seven to ten day walk to even get to your, get to your climb um, and the medical facilities in Pakistan are just a, a level down from what's available in Nepal.
1: So when so that sounds challenging on multiple levels, actually, Dan, and looking at, yeah, not only the remoteness, but the ceilings of care that you're actually retrieving back to. Could you maybe just speak to your contingency planning Um and what contingencies you put in place when you are when you are operating in in the Himalayan range, or indeed in Pakistan, if Plan A doesn't uh, doesn't work?
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, Plan A in in both regions is generally always going to be a helicopter ride out. You know, there's even if you're you know in in, a, in Everest Base Camp, you know, to get somebody out by ground is going to take you know a couple of days, Pakistan, you're talking at least a week to get somebody out by ground. So Plan A is always a helicopter ride. Um, But as I mentioned previously, you know, these things fail for whatever reason. You know, in Pakistan, it might be that there isn't a helicopter available. It's, you know, we run run them through the Pakistan military. Uh, Obviously, they they have other tasks. Sometimes they're not going to be available. And then in Everest, you know, quite often we're impacted by things like weather, or you might not be in a a region that's even, you know, reachable by a helicopter. So in those cases, it's going to be, you know, bringing out somebody by ground, um, which is challenging. I mean, most of the time we would use the, you know, the, the climbers, hopefully they're with a team of Sherpas who are, you know, skilled at getting people out by ground. They're normally another level of physical fitness above most climbers so they're able to at least bring people down in altitude quite often just bringing people down can you know dramatically improve their symptoms if we're talking about altitude related illnesses or in some cases they can get them to a to an area where the weather isn't isn't as bad for us to get the helicopter in
1: so so looking at that actually that ground versus air retrieval and just some of the sort of nuances really around the information you can you can get because, like you said, I guess it's a lot more protracted when it's a ground retrieval versus a, an air retrieval. Do you have to sort of build in continu- contingency to almost um, not expect but predict that maybe the the patient might get better? There might be a very different uh, level of recovery and or s- picture once that that protracted ground retrieval has occurred because like you said the altitude and de-escalating sort of the altitude over time might improve the picture versus actually retrieval by air they might still be quite sick do, do you have to be very flexible in your approach when it is a ground retrieval
0: yeah absolutely i mean we we generally have, you know nowadays with satellite phones and actually within <clears throat> nepal you have generally have a good data signal most most of the route all up to Everest Base Camp. There's Wi-Fi that sometimes works at Everest Base Camp. So, you know, if we're doing something like a ground, you know, a ground extraction, then we would keep in touch with the, the person all the way down. And we, we would then, you know, change our, you know, our decision-making process if we're gonna launch the helicopter. You know, you find with an awful lot of these cases that as soon as they go down a few hundred meters they do feel better you know the problem is a lot of the time people get themselves into a position where it's difficult for them to even get themselves down a couple hundred meters but when it's the only you know only thing that they can do and they're able to yeah i'd say a good percentage don't then actually need to be evacuated so uh, you can, you know, save someone's trip sometimes by not immediately launching a helicopter. So, you know, I think it's like anything, we, you know, we Global Rescue as a company ha- handles hundreds of cases every year. I think this this year we handled around 200 cases. So it's the same as when you're sat in a, you know, an ambulance dispatch room, you know, when you're listening in on the call, you, you know, a- after some time, the staff, you know, the, the company becomes skilled at recognising the ones that need to be evacuated straight away are very sick versus the ones that maybe will improve, you know, on descent. So we look at various things when we're, you know, building this assessment. You know, one, one thing that is really useful is, you know, the altitude profile. So, you know, how fast somebody has got up to Everest Base Camp, for example, will tell you a lot you know you can generally own you know the, the human body can only go up a couple of hundred, you know up to 400 meters per day you know and, and acclimatize if somebody's gone from Lukla, which is about 2400 meters and then you know four days later they're at Everest Base camp which is you know 5800 meters it doesn't take you know complex maths to work out that they've you know they've gone well above what they should have done in terms of their ascent profile. And then you know the other other real red flags we're looking for are you know signs of HAPE, so high altitude pulmonary edema and HACE, which is high altitude cerebral edema. If they've got signs and symptoms of either of those conditions, we you know we we're, we're going to look to evacuate them straight away or. Conditions like frostbite that really need advanced treatment, we're going to evacuate straight away. The the moderate AMS cases is the ones where you know there's more, you know, more detailed decision making to decide whether you know a you need to be evacuated, b you know the the urgency, and you know c by what means uh, with with nepal being so busy you know what we've done over the last season and well the last several seasons is you know literally use a helicopter and pick up five people you know so we'll assess somebody and think okay this person does need to be evacuated they can't easily extract themselves by ground but they don't have to be evacuated within the next hour it's reasonable that we can do this you know within the next 12 hours and then on the on these busy days <clears throat> during nepal high season we'd maybe fill three helicopters so maybe you know up you know up to 15 people in a day so what that would look like is you know somebody would call in from everest base camp um you know we would Detail their symptoms, classify it that they would need to be evacuated, but not immediately. And then, once we had, you know, we might bring them down to Lukla, see them, put them at Lukla Hospital. We've got, we'd have staff, global rescue staff there. If they're fine to wait, we would, you know, go and pick up more people. And then, once we have a full helicopter, fly them all back to Kathmandu. It's a uh, it's a little bit different in Pakistan. Uh, we're we're only able to fly one person out at a time. So in Pakistan, really, we need to assess. You know, does the person need evacuating versus, you know, can they remain in place or get out by ground? It's a lot more challenging in Pakistan. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's you know when when you when you were talking about the Kumbu region in Nepal, so Everest and. Down to Lukla, there's lots of little villages. There's during the climbing season, there's various you know medical outposts in places like Fariche, Namche. So you're never too far away from you know basic medical care. Whereas in Pakistan, you know the K two region, you are really remote. You know you're a seven or eight day walk from civilization. So though in you know in pakistan we just have to decide whether you need evacuating or not and then bring them down to skardu
1: so that sounds like far much more of a so, linear cut off in a, in a yeah. way like you said you you, you just need to take a, a, a finite decision rather than be able to sit on that on that decision
0: yeah we do i mean we still may not make the decision straight away you know because use it you know in, I'll, I'll give you an example in Nepal the rescue industry the rescue industry there is a commercial enterprise it's a big big money enterprise there's five or six helicopter companies that are fighting for business. So it's on a you know a morning the, if you if you had a dispatch screen of all the helicopters so you couldn't look at you know the air traffic control as your dispatch screen. You might have more resources than you would in central london on a morning in the nhs ambulance service you might have 30 resources that are at your disposal to send somebody whereas in pakistan you have one resource which is the pakistan military Um, it's a lot more complex it's a lot more expensive they don't fly in a single helicopter any mission the, the Pakistan military do over a mountain range they their protocol is to fly two helicopters in so one person getting picked up gets two helicopters uh, it's a lot further Skardu to K2 you know we'll take several hours in a helicopter and then several hours back so there's big differences when you when you talk about the Himalayas there's big differences between Nepal and Pakistan. You know, like I sort of touched on earlier, Nepal is fairly easy now, just because of the numbers of people that climb there and the fact that there's a you know a commercial industry focused on you know transporting people. Um, the hardest thing in Nepal is you know. just that just that decision making process on who needs to be evacuated and who who doesn't
1: so dan looking at the training that you provide um for the regions uh for 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 the retrieval practitioners going in could you maybe speak to what elements of training you you give them when when they're um when they're out on 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 the role
0: yeah sure so (laughs) You know, in, in Nepal, and we, do, we don't deploy people to Pakistan, so I can't really comment on that. But in Nepal, we de- every year we deploy, you know, four, five, six global rescue specialists go to Nepal. They spend a couple of months there. Their, their main role is to, you know, help coordinate the missions and assist people when they're in hospital in Kathmandu. Now, they do they do fly on helicopter missions. But those in terms of medical, you know, medical training, though, those are really grab and go missions. You will pick somebody up, you know, they're at Everest Base Camp. They're wearing, you know, a a full climbing suit. You don't really have access to, you know, arms and legs. And they're suffering with altitude sickness, where the main treatment you want to give them is to fly them down uh, to send them down, so we really just grab and go, you know grab and go with people, pick them up. There's there's very limited time and limited space to treat them in the helicopter. So our global rescue staff they do fly in the helicopters, but generally that is just an di- additional duty. Their main role there is to be in Kathmandu, and we also place one at Lukla, which is like the the gateway to the region and they'll, you know, help triage people as they come into Lukla Hospital. The the main training that I would do before people go is, you know, it's really focused on, you know, the health and safety of working in helicopters in Nepal. Um, It's a third world country, a developing country. You, you, I mean, you know this from your travels, that health and safety in some countries is not, you know, a focus. So the, fir- the, the first thing that I want to highlight to people that are travelling there, you know, to work for Global Rescue and work on helicopters is, you know, the things they need to do to keep themselves safe. It was... The first time I went was really eye-opening. I mean, you, I'll give you an example in when you flew into the old helipad in Lukla, you would land the helicopter, or the pilot would land the helicopter, and there's just throngs of locals, tourists, all just hanging out at the helipad. You might have a 100 people there, uh, gas canisters, kids, um, helicopters, you know, starting, you know, and flying off places. So that's the main focus. And then the, se- the secondary focus is just on the assessment assessment skills you know and that's I'm talking remote assessment so how do we assess people over the telephone you know over over text how do we determine which ones need to be evacuated um, the actual medical side of things is limited there just because we literally grab people and bring them down uh, if we if we do get a complex medical case, Quite often we'll engage, we have a, a team in one of the local hospitals in Kathmandu and we'll fly the helicopter there, pick them up and uh, fly them up to the region and you know, bring them down. <laughs> but that takes hours, right? So it's quite often the best thing to do is to you know, just literally get people on the helicopter and, and bring them to medical care instead of taking medical care to them.
1: So down that all sounds, uh, really quite sensible and, um, probably just the ex- expediting that, um, that definitive care elsewhere where there's far more, st- far more stability sounds, sounds sensible. So just speak to that, Dan. Could you speak to the, maybe the instability of the, uh, and the dynamic nature of the weather? How much does that play into your sort of decision making skills, your deferral to plan B or plan C in, in, in the whole plan?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, there are weather forecasts in that region. But there, you know, I'm sure if you measured the accuracy of the forecasts, I mean, you, you, you can get high level forecasts that climbers use to decide when to climb. But even those are, you know, just a rough guide. So we defer to the pilots really to give us a good assessment of the weather. You know, is it safe to fly somewhere? Is it safe to pick someone up? Um, But even, even with that, they still regularly get stuck places. So I guess one thing is we, if there's any questionable bad weather, you know, if the pilot reports any questionable bad weather. Now, bad weather in that region can just be, you know, heavy cloud because they fly, you know, visual flight rules. Um, It means that if we have a borderline case, uh, you know, a case where they may benefit from being in a helicopter, but they potentially can, you know, wait longer, we're really going to reserve the helicopter for the most serious cases then. Um, But it's very unpredictable. I'll, you know, I'll give... A, an example of, you know, the, the first time I was there, the first time I flew up to Everest Base Camp, the weather was great, it was beautiful, we flew up, um, landed at Everest Base Camp, we picked up several climbers there that were sick, um, and then the pilot was going to fly up to Camp uh, 2 to pick another person up, bring them down to Everest Base Camp and then collect us all and they flew up to have, uh, to camp 2 uh, it was clear skies and then within 10 minutes you know cloud comes in the, the pilot luckily managed to make it back down to base camp uh, which was touch and go for him because i mean he can't afford to just stay at, at camp 2 you know he's, he's got fuel fuel levels he's got you know, he's not acclimatized to that altitude. He's got limited oxygen, things like that. Manages luckily to make it down to base camp. And then we had a really hairy fly down, back down to Lukla, literally in, in the riverbed all the way down. We actually had to to stop halfway, you know, and just land the helicopter and wait for this cloud cover to go. Um, that was eye-opening. I mean, how fast things change there. Um so it's, yeah, just to conclude you know it's it's unpredictable you we have days we had you know three day period this season where all the helicopters were just downed in various locations, so we you know we use the helicopters with with that caution in mind, you know, especially when any of the global rescue people are flying on them if there's any, Potential to get stuck somewhere, you know, we, we really don't want them flying on those missions. Um, the helicopter pilots are, you know, somewhat acclimatized, um, they have survival gear with them, they can generally find somewhere to sleep the night. Um, our guys aren't acclimatized, they might be acclimatized to Lukla, you know, so just under 3,000 meters. And we do carry, you know, oxygen that they can use when they fly up. But we're not really preparing. We're not really prepared to spend extended time. You know, at, you know the, the the altitudes that the helicopter might fly up to, like six thousand meters, seven thousand meters.
1: So. so that sounds um, like a tricky situation. Like you said, not only have you got dynamic weather conditions, you've got dynamic pathology. So you've got, you know conditions and and or um illnesses changing you've got weather conditions changing sort of windows or opportunities changing all the time so it's um it's certainly not a sort of a fixed um a fixed plan so to speak but dan could you maybe then speak to you you know your notion towards the common pathologies you're seeing on the mountain being that of altitude sickness, primarily, maybe hypothermia as well. Could you could you maybe speak to some some of the other pathologies you see? Uh, do you, are you seeing a lot of fractures? Are you, are you seeing a lot of sort of uh, underlying comorbidities that that that, that present uh, due to the altitude or, or due to strenuous exercise?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean the the main things we see there, the main things we evacuate people for are altitude related. Um, the the two ones I mentioned earlier, Hape and Hace, they're, the, they're, I would say they probably take up 70 to 80% of the evacuations would be those cases. Um, and then we have a lot of people with frostbite. <laughs> so probably I'd say 10 to 20% would be the average each season. People that are suffering from frostbite, and then the remaining ten percent can just be a wide range of things. Um, I mean, just sometimes complete exhaustion. You know, if you've pushed too hard to try and summit Everest, for example, just trying to get back down, people are just completely exhausted to the point you know where it does become medical emergency for them. Um, and then we have a lot of people that have. You know, your normal virus that, if they were at sea level or at home, wouldn't affect them. I mean, most people climbing there are generally fit individuals. But when they've spent, you know, a month at altitude, their immune system's down. um, These things can really knock them out. So, yeah, the three three we see mainly are hate, pace and, and frostbite. And they're the ones that will really look to evacuate asap you know they're the ones that we treat the most seriously we do have other case you know traumatic cases we have had cases you know broken legs you know people are climbing mountains right so they f- they fall down um, um but th- that makes up a small amount of our of our sort of general cases i probably think we have you know, three or four per season out of you know, 150 cases
1: um,
0: You see that less on You see that those cases less On Everest Because You know, as high as Everest is You know, it's the highest mountain in the world It's not a technically demanding mountain It's surprising when you See it The first time It's not as Maybe as impressive as you think Because when you fly into Everest Base Camp You're already at Just under Six thousand meters. So Everest is just under nine thousand meters. So you look, you it looks like a three thousand meter mountain, and most of the way up that is, you know, you go through the ice ice fall, which is obviously the date the really dangerous part. But when, once you're through there, it it's not extreme. You know, it's uh, there's large plateaus where people are, you know, just walking, and then there's obviously more severe slopes but it's generally you know just just walking it's not a technical climb um there's other mountains in that region you know like annapurna Amadablam, you see more cases like on on those mountains where people you know are actually technical climbing and you know they can slip and fall we've had a few cases where um people have fallen down crevices know and obviously injured themselves in that way Um, but those cases aren't as common as as maybe you would uh, think from the outside we um, we see more I I guess we see more cases like that in in Pakistan K2 it's more of a technical climb there's far more avalanche risk there so quite often get people injured by you know falling rocks and avalanches Um, but the treatment for that treatment for all these things is the same it 's get get a helicopter to them and get them down to you know definitive care
1: so Dan, looking at the um, what you were talking about earlier offline around the fourfold um Increase in in passes given to climbers uh, post COVID. Um, I think we're seeing this in the UK uh, in in a, in a minor sense. You know the the hiatus in travel, then a real exponential rise in travel post post COVID, and and I guess an exponential rise in climbing um, post COVID in in your region. Could you maybe speak to what what that also entails, and what risks uh, and or second or third order effects that 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 has uh, brought about?
0: yeah so i mean we we i mean everyone lost a couple of years of travel didn't they While while the pandemic was here so we saw you know two seasons in nepal where the first one we had a couple of cases and then the second season of the you know during the pandemic there was zero cases because nobody could fly to nobody could even go to nepal um and then 2021 in nepal we saw you know record permit numbers so record people going there to climb um, that uh, was a combination I guess of people that hadn't been able to go the previous years that had permits for them they just moved them to the following years and then people just looking for any opportunity to travel so um, we're now seeing that fall over to Pakistan so, so normally Pakistan has been really low numbers so k2 uh, a busy climbing season you know 2019 the last sort of busy climbing season was i think it was like 50 permits and then this year you've got several hundred permits so we're seeing a you know a much larger increase in numbers in both locations um nepal it's manageable you know you have like i mentioned earlier you've got multiple helicopter companies it's a big industry there and with a good climbing team a good expedition team if you're a fit individual and you really prepare for everest it's within most people's capabilities you know the the hardest thing about climbing everest now i speak from not from experience here but from what people have told me you know the hardest thing is Acclimatizing, you know, your body. If you're acclimatized, and nowadays people just really have, you know, loads of oxygen that brings the altitude down. It's, you know, it's you are walking up Everest. So, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's within the capabilities of a, a fit individual. the The real worry is that now you're seeing large numbers in Pakistan, where it's not quite the same environment. You know, K2 is nicknamed the killer mountain. And I think the for every person that summits, it's got a 25% fatality rate. So every four people that summit, one person dies. Um, And it used to be the real, you know, sort of elite climbers that would go there. So you'd only see people there that had already climbed multiple 8,000 metre mountains very experienced most of them weren't doing it as a hobby it would be you know they'd be professional climbers um or you know very advanced you know advanced climbers whereas now this season you're seeing still seeing that group set there but with the accompaniment of a lot of people that haven't got the experience to be in pakistan you know they haven't got the climbing experience they haven't got the sort of resiliency you'd need to climb in those environments so it hasn't happened yet we've seen enough you know far more cases than we have previous seasons we haven't had you know a complete can't think what the word is we haven't had it you know we haven't been overwhelmed yet but with the fourfold increase that's that's always a possibility it's always always a fear right when you've only got one one way of getting people out is seeing 400 people on k2 you know when you add in the, all the support staff all the local um porters that will be there all the the guides the sherpas that come over from nepal to help people climb it's it's almost i don't want to tempt fate but it's almost like a, a disaster waiting to happen you know you think back to <clears throat> i think it was 2017 in nepal when the when there was an earthquake there uh, during climbing season I can't remember if it's 2017 or 2018. Um, You know, you have 100 people all needing rescue at one time. Now, obviously very difficult, you know, with it being a humanitarian disaster zone at the same time, but you have 30 helicopters to go and pick up people, whereas the fear is with the numbers you're now seeing in Pakistan and the lack of resources they have there, if you do get an event like a, an avalanche, an earthquake, um, or just people going up there unprepared and getting stuck in a queue, like you will have seen in the media for Everest, if you see something like that at K two and you get you know twenty people all sick and needing needing evacuating, it's another level of you know difficulty to, to actually do that in Pakistan. So, you know, I I work in the travel industry, you know, Global Rescue is a travel assistance company. You you want to encourage people to to travel to these places. I mean, I've not not been lucky enough to go to Pakistan. I've just seen it, you know, from photos and videos, and I understand why people want to go there. It's uh, beautiful and it'd be great to, you know, when you've been to Nepal, the idea of getting more remote is is certainly attractive, you know, and sometimes Nepal can feel not, re- not remote enough. But I would just say to people to go there with caution, you know, and be resilient. Uh, go there with a plan that doesn't involve getting a helicopter to fly you out. You know, go there with sufficient medical knowledge Go there with sufficient medical gear to look after yourself. Um, we've we've seen several groups this year. You know, they're uh, a week away from civilization and they haven't got anything with them. You know, they haven't even got paracetamol with them. So very unprepared. So that would be the, the key thing I would say is Yes, it's great that people are travelling to these regions, but I would go there with caution. I mean, I think the numbers that they are taking now to K2 is probably irresponsible, but I understand why they're doing it. I mean, it's a big industry in Pakistan. They've had several years where they haven't had numbers going there. So now this is their opportunity to, to get the industry back on its feet. But... As, you know, foreign tourists, we need to be responsible and go there and be able to look after ourselves and use the resources like the helicopter for the people that, you know, have no alternative, the really sick individuals.
1: Yeah, very much so. And what I'm getting from you there, Dan, is like you said, the the more remote... Um, essentially, the more prepared you need to be and have a plan A, plan B, plan C, and, um, and also think about things that you may not have thought, had to think about in, in, in Nepal. Uh, Dan, from a perspective r- r- around retrieval as an operations manager and sort of from my background, knowing how difficult it is sometimes to get continuity of care for specialist centers to accept patients on the back end of a retrieval and speaking to hospitals and or getting bed space um is is challenging how how have you navigated that space from an operations manager perspective around sort of continuity of care
0: again it's uh, a tale of two stories in the himalayas so so nepal is generally very easy to get people into hospitals there you know then i wouldn't call any of the hospitals there world class but they're certainly Comparable with Western standards if you go to the better private hospitals and you know, again, it's an industry there So with foreign people that have got insurance willing to pay generally you will find Not only bed space, but fairly specialist treatment there. I mean, we've had people before You know needing really specialist stuff like they've ended up on ECMO uh, And you know very specialist stuff that you wouldn't just get at any hospital within the UK but it's available in Nepal. Now, Pakistan is almost the polar opposite. So, there, <clears throat> the the place that people are taken to in Pakistan, for most regions, is Skardu. Uh, Skardu is a fairly big city, but the medical facilities there are very substandard. You know, our, our guys go to a military hospital. It's called the Combined Military Hospital, and <laughs> they don't i wouldn't i i don't want to disparage them and say they don't get good care there but it's not always what you would expect um from western standards you know they, they have limited resources there they generally don't have you know the diagnostic capabilities and the one of the issues in Skardu is just even getting people out of Skardu is difficult so your your transport is not not over there in Nepal in Kathmandu once you're in Kathmandu you, you you know in terms of medical care you're pretty you know you're pretty sorted there there's good hospitals and if the hospitals aren't capable it's easy to fly in an air ambulance you know there's an international airport there can fly in an, an you know an air ambulance from anywhere you know Thailand Singapore or you know even you know the United States Air ambulances can fly in there, right, and get you to wherever you want in the world Scardu, Once you're at the combined military hospital Even getting patients out of there is difficult Um, Trying to think we did have one case there where somebody had you know a spinal injury, so they were taken by the military helicopter to the military hospital in Skardu. they were found to have you know a, an unstable spinal fracture obviously needed to be treated outside of that hospital you know there was limited what they would do there um, but even what would be a fairly simple case in most places was very complex I mean there wasn't even a, a there's not even a domestic transport provider that has um, you know, a, spi- a, a stretcher, a spinal board, things like that. So, <clears throat> in that case, we actually had to fly somebody in. From you know, global global rescue staff member flew in from Asia, flew into Pakistan to help coordinate. And you know, we had to end up taking taking seats out of a commercial um, commercial fixed wing and actually purchasing a spinal board in Islamabad, flying it up to there. So. Again, it's completely different environment depending if if you're in Nepal or Pakistan.
1: So Dan as we're coming to land on the conversation could I just maybe get you to speak to take-home messages from anyone that's considering uh, climbing in, in indeed sort of Nepal or Pakistan like you said it's really interesting getting your perspective because it is a tale of two stories really and two very subtly well not even subtly dramatic different ecosystems of care, of logistics, of support crew, of risk. Um and I guess fundamentally your role is risk management and and coordinating risk. Could I get you to speak to take home messages from um from these extreme environments for anyone who's maybe considering to going there.
0: Sure. Yeah I mean I'd say go go prepared. You know, you have to be a high high level of fitness to work well at altitude. I mean, go there with a high level of fitness, so really prepare for your trip in advance. Um, go there prepared to look after yourself. And what I mean by that is if you're going there as a group, make sure that they have some basic medical provisions Um are able to, you know, you're able to get access to clean water, good food. Um, Go there with, make sure you you don't go with a cheap provider, go with a responsible provider. You know, the the cheap providers are cheap for a reason. You want to go there with a provider that gives you, you know, good local support. Um, Go there with a plan what you're going to do if things go wrong and don't let that plan end at you know just getting travel insurance. You need to be prepared to be able to get yourself out in most cases so you know you want survival gear even if you're only planning on spending a short period of time at you know if you're doing for example the Everest Base Camp Trek (laughs) you're your itinerary might only be a night at Everest Base Camp, or it might even be that you go to Everest Base Camp and then leave, but be prepared to stay there for longer. You know, thin- things happen. Um, take, always have a way of communicating outside that environment. So a, a satellite phone is ideal. There's, there's several, you know, fairly cheap options you can get now. It doesn't mean buying a really expensive satellite phone. There's, Satellite devices like the InReach, um, Garmin InReach, Zolio, or you can get these newer dev- newer devices that help you connect your mobile phone. So, you know, it's no good having good, good insurance if you're not able to get in touch with us. Um, and treat the locals with respect. That is a big one. I mean, the in nepal and pakistan um there's a these guys have been living there for you know as long as anyone's been living anywhere you know these guys know how to operate at altitude um and they will quite often you know save you when isn't you know when otherwise you would you would demise um and take it slow i mean that's a a real big one is just to take take these trips slow Uh, i'd say a a large majority of the cases we see like i mentioned earlier it's no surprise that people are sick you have to have a good acclimatization period Um, it's very easy i mean i've done (laughs) personal trips in nepal you know and uh, You know climbing up to like six and a half seven thousand meters and it's very easy to get carried away and you know you think you're you think you're fit and you can do more in a day but it quickly catches up with you if you try and push the boundaries so take it slow and always be prepared to back off you know walk back down a hill that you've walked up and spend more time you know acclimatizing So any trip that I would look at personally, if people are offering to do the trip in 10 days, I want to work out, okay, is that a good enough time to to do the trip in terms of climatization? And then I'd, I'd always add several days on so that it leaves me some leeway to spend a day's rest somewhere or get stuck somewhere, things like that.
1: Listen, that's fantastic advice and just building plenty of contingency into the into the plan sounds sounds uh, like a good advice to me. Um, Dan, listen, I just want to thank you for the last hour uh, of your time and your perspectives, because they're they're both insightful and informative. Um, So thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.